Yo, yo. Hey, hey. I'm Fred. I'm Adrian. And, and we're, we're FNA. FNA. If this is your first time here, welcome, everyone. And make sure you hit that subscribe button and feel free to drop us a line in the comments and reviews. Because that's what helps us continue to do what we do. And what we're going to do today is a crime story. Yes, it is. And a list of cults. Oh, boy. I got I got a pretty good list. I've heard. It's I've a, heard. It's yes, a, you do. I think I, I got almost an episode in itself. Oh, just, really? Just in my list of cults. Oh, boy. So uh, I'm kind of excited to get into that. I'm... Uh, I'm anxious to hear it because I I know some of the cults, I think, that you're researching, but there's a few that I have no idea about. Yeah, so. I learned I, there's some new ones that uh, I've never heard of before either. Yeah. And um, some of the information I got is is longer mm-hmm. than than some of the other ones. But, uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Yep. Absolutely. You going to go first? Do you want me to go first? Or? Yeah, what the hell? All right, all right. Yeah, let's tell the story, and then we'll do the list. <laughs> all right, sounds good. All righty. Well, this story is the tragic case of Emma Walker, okay? Ooh. This is the true crime story. Okay. All right. I'm excited. <clears throat> yeah, I, Excuse I, me. You wouldn't tell me anything about this all week. No, so no. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. All right. I'm ready. Give it to me. I'm excited. Well, this story takes place in Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay. In the year 2014, Central High School's cheerleading squad welcomed a new face, a beautiful 14-year-old freshman named Emma Walker. Okay. Emma loved cheerleading and took it very seriously. And early that fall... Walker's moves, her cheerleading moves, you know, caught the eye of the football team's wide receiver, a junior named Riley Gall. Now, Riley was raised by his mother and grandparents, and he was a top student and loved video games. All right. So a lot of his friends... Who don't like video games? Well, not typical for football players, you know. A lot of his friends said that he was not the classic jock type. Okay. And he did have a little nerdy side to him. Uh, when Emma's parents first met Riley, they both said that, you know, he made a great first impression and he was the boy next door type. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, he was very polite and likable. Okay. Riley and Emma were never allowed to go on actual dates by themselves because she was only, you know, 14. Sure. But he was allowed to come over to the house and, like, eat dinner with them and watch movies, you know, things like that. So in the beginning of the relationship, things were great. Both of their social medias were filled with pictures of Mm -hmm. them together, such as, like, paddleboarding, taking silly selfies and cute, you know, lovey, lovey lovey-dovey moments. They were falling. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Riley never talked to Emma's friends, though, and they just thought that, like, he was shy at first, but after a while, her friends started getting a little concerned, you know? Uh, Riley started to seem like he didn't want Emma hanging with, like, anyone other than him. Okay, became a little possessive? Yeah. 
And he also became very controlling over her, very clingy, and wouldn't allow her to do certain things. Oh, wow. Yeah. So over the next now, two... Re- remind me again, I know you said high school. How old, how old were these two again? Okay, well, Emma was 14. She was a freshman. Okay. And Riley was a junior. Okay, he was so probably So he had 17. to have been about, yeah, 17. Okay. So... Um, Please anyway. continue. <clears throat> Sorry. Okay. So, like I was saying, over the next two years, uh, Emma and Riley, you know, they had the typical high school relationship. They would break up, get back together, break up, get back together, just like, you know, typical high school relationships do. But uh, friends described a lot of their arguments that they had as being very dramatic and often the arguments wouldn't take place like face to face. It would happen actually through text messages and um, Snapchat. Like, I, I guess I, I don't use Snapchat, but I guess Snapchat, you can, you know, do messages through there and everything. So, okay. Yeah. I played with that a little bit after it first came out. Yeah. You could, like, you could take pictures and make your face look like a donkey or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I got kind of old pretty quick. Yeah. Well, um, Emma's mom stated that she noticed Riley would tell Emma what she should and shouldn't wear. And finally, Emma's oh, wow. mom, Jill, said something to Emma about it. And things eventually got very, very intense. And friends who worked with Emma said Riley would wait for hours outside of the supermarket that she worked at. Bit obsessive. Much. Oh, yeah. So, Riley, um, he also started to become more aggressive towards Emma and, you know, sent her messages. It said, you know, I hate you and I hate everything about you. Um, You know, you're the biggest bitch I've ever come in contact with. And these were actually, like, recorded messages. Wow. Like, the police got these messages and everything. So, yeah. Um, One message alarmed Jill, Emma's mom. Yeah. That read... You're dead to me. I'll check the obituary for your name. Fuck you. Word for word. Okay. And what? The, what that was a text message? I'm a, yes. Yeah. It was a text message. To her? Yes. So when, uh, when Jill, Emma's mom, questioned Riley about it, he said, oh, he was just angry. You know, it, it wasn't anything. Yeah, of course not. To write home about, yeah. Yeah, that black guy I just got hit with a doorknob. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely, yep. So that was the beginning of the red flags okay. in the relationship. So Riley, at that point, he was banned from the Walker's home. Uh, and Emma's cell phone was actually taken away to try and keep the two from communicating anymore. But, unfortunately, no luck. Riley actually gave Emma an iPod Touch and she would text him through using it over the Wi-Fi. So every nasty message that he would send to Emma would be followed up with an apology. You know, it just went back and forth constantly. So Emma's parents pleaded with her to break up with him, but didn't very, want... Very obsessive, very controlling, mm-hmm. maybe a bit stalkish. I was just about to say very stalkerish. Yes, very stalkerish. Um, yeah, a- Emma's parents played with her to just, you know, end it, break up with him, but they didn't want to persist too much because, you know, basically the more you butt heads with teens, the more they're, they're going to retaliate. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. 
So they didn't want to push too much because of that reason. They didn't want to push her, push her right into his arms. Exactly. So by the fall of 2016, Emma and Riley, they were still dating. Riley graduated and was now an 18-year-old freshman at a nearby college. Okay. Emma was 16 at this point and in her junior year of high school. So their toxic relationship still continued regardless of her parents' attempts to keep them apart. And um, on Halloween that year, Emma's parents actually decided to ground her so she could only go to school and cheerleading, and that's it. You know, school, home, cheerleading, no friends, no parties, because they were fearful of her meeting up with him. I can only imagine the parents are trying to think of anything that they could come up with. Yes, to tactfully, you know, remove this guy from her life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, so this attempt worked uh, to keep her away from Riley. Emma's father, like, it, it did, no- Emma's father noticed that, um, you know, she was becoming her old self again, and she would actually come out of her room and socialize and eat dinner with the family. Night and day. Yeah, like, they noticed a big change. Um, she actually texted uh, one of her friends and said that her and Riley were done for good. Good. So everyone was so relieved and happy at right. this point, you know. But Riley, however, didn't take the breakup so well. No, he was no. still lingering. Linger. Yeah. Lingering around. Well, Riley tried several attempts to commit suicide. Okay. Um, several attempts were swallowing Vicodin and taking them with alcohol. Okay. And his friends noticed these cries for help, but they also knew that he was not serious. He right. was doing it for attention. Exactly. Yep. Um, so on Friday, November 18th, 2016, Emma was allowed to go to a party. She was allowed to go to her friend's party. So around 1130 that night, her friend Zach arrived And Emma pulled him aside, and she was telling him that she was getting these weird text messages from a number she didn't recognize. Uh, The messages wrote, this is word for word, come outside alone if you don't want to see a loved one get hurt. Another said, go to your car alone with your keys. I've got someone you love. If you don't comply, I will hurt them. So Emma thought, oh God, yeah. So Emma thought it was one of Riley's friends, yeah. And so she threatened to call the cops on him. And the next message said, "If you like to hear his crying and screams, give them a call." <laughs> so who well, who did he, who did he have? I'm getting to that. Okay, okay. Um, Zach said that Emma started you know, begging him to help her. Right. Because she was, you know, freaking out. She then said they um, they told her that they dropped Riley outside of the house party that they were at. Right. So Zach and Emma went out, and sure enough, there was a body lying face down in a ditch near the house. And it was Riley. Oh. So when they approached him... He was alive. He pulled his head up, and he had this, like, confused look on his face. And Emma asked him why he was there. 
and he explained that he didn't know why it happened or, or what happened. He just had no idea. Okay. So he said that he was kidnapped and someone dropped him off there. Right. Mm-hmm. So Emma was immediately uneasy and just said to Riley, hey, we're broken up and you need to leave me alone. Yeah, right. Riley then walked off and called his friend Noah, who knew about Riley's obsession with Emma. Yeah. When Riley told Noah about I'm sorry about what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noah said to the cops that he did not believe a word of it. Of course, didn't believe it. Okay. Um, when Noah offered to call the cops, Riley told him, "No, no, 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 no cops, no cops." So the following morning, Emma texted a friend telling her that she was home alone, and someone in all black walked down her street. And came to the door and kept ringing the doorbell over and over and over again. So she was scared and she she actually, you know, thought she was going to die. So after, uh, you know, texting her friend and everything, she then texted Riley. And this is the exact text message to Riley. Okay. I hate you, but I need you right now. Riley replied... I'm coming. I'm speeding. Just give me a minute. Okay. The Emma texted Riley. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that morning, Emma was supposed to meet her mom, but she didn't show up. So her mom, Jill, got worried. So she went home and found Emma and Riley in the front yard. They were just sitting there talking and everything. So uh, Emma's mom politely told Riley to leave. Yeah. He told her, no, he was only there to help, and he was just making sure that Emma was okay. So then Emma's mom, Jill, finally told him that, you know, hey, you know you're not allowed here. You're not supposed to be here, and you need to leave. Right. And he did. He did leave. So at this point, Emma's parents were severely— Emma's what? She's 15, uh, going on 16 at this time? She's 16 at 15 or 16 at this time. Okay. Yeah, I believe she was 16. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, Emma's parents, they were uh, severely worried at this point, you know. And on Sunday, they actually followed her to work and back home to make sure that Riley would not be at the house. Okay. By Sunday night, things seemed back to normal. And Emma texted her friend about a homework assignment, you know, and went to bed a little after midnight. Um. On Monday, November 21st, 2016, a little after 6 a.m., Jill went into Emma's room. This is Emma's mom. She went into her room to wake her up, but Emma didn't wake up. Jill states, I said her name, didn't hear anything, bumped her leg, nothing. Then I looked at her face and I realized... I checked for a pulse and couldn't find anything. I don't remember a whole lot from that point. I know I called 911. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there's actually a 911 call that you can hear. Um, If you, you know, anybody that's uh, listening, if you go to YouTube and you type in Emma Walker, you know, they have, like, the 2020 documentary and everything, and you can hear, oh, God, that mom's call to 911. It's 
terrifying. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So um, police were sent, and uh, lead forensics said the call originally came in as a possible suicide. Okay. They thought it was suicide. When Deputy uh, Nikki Bulls got there, she started with um, photographs on the outside. Then she walked inside and photographed Emma's room and saw a bullet hole. At that point, she knew that this was probably not a suicide. Yeah. So the Knox County Sheriff, Lieutenant Alan Merritt, arrived on the scene and started looking around the outside of the house, and he noticed a bullet hole in the wall that was about shoulder height. Yeah. He then saw two shell casings. He eventually found a second bullet hole on a different side of the house and the same height as the first one. At this point, it was concluded that Emma Walker was killed by a gunshot wound to the head. One bullet hit her behind her left ear. Yeah. And the second lodged into her pillow. And he, well, he was shooting from outside the house into the house. Yeah. And this was his second shot, or did he try and shoot somebody else in the house? Well, we're getting there. I'm so into this right now. (laughs) I keep forgetting to repeat the sound effects. (laughs) Well, um, police, you know, started questioning around. And, of course, what name kept popping up? Riley Gall. Riley, yeah. Riley Gall. All her friends, her parents, everybody said, this is Riley's Go get that dude. Yeah. Yeah. Get Riley now. So detectives brought in Riley for questioning. Of course. He acted very strange. Mm -hmm. During the two-hour interrogation that, you know, police did with him. And the weird thing was he kept referring to Emma as the girl. He never said Emma's name. He never, like. Gave any inkling, you know, that he was, like, in love with her or anything. It was just the girl. That's weird. Yeah. That's weird. It was either the girl especially, and that girl. Well, yeah, and especially since they were a couple for however long. Yeah, yeah and, years. You know, and, years, and, yeah. And then even after they broke up, he was infatuated with her. Mm-hmm. And then to refer to her as, like, a stranger. Yeah. That is super strange. Yeah. Well, police... They actually um, questioned Riley's friends, Noah, and there was another friend, and they said that they knew Riley was acting very strange and something was up, and the police said, you know, would you mind if we wired you guys up, you know, give you, you know, hidden cameras, wire you up so we can listen and everything, Mm -hmm. and um, at this point, Riley's grandfather's Nine millimeter gun, handgun, okay, was stolen. Nobody knew about this, right? So at one point, Riley is in his—I don't know if it's his living room or the friend's living room—but he's saying, you know, I—I got to get rid of this gun. You know, it, I, I got to put it in the lake and this and that. And the friends are like, you know, what's going on? This and, and he's like, I just have to get rid of it. I just have to get rid yeah, of it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, being real strange. Mm-hmm. So, they eventually found out that Riley was the one that stole his grandfather's gun. Of course. 
and this matched the shell casings mm-hmm. and everything, and this was the weapon that was used in the murder of Emma Walker. Oh, wow. So at Riley's trial, his attorney argued that he never meant to kill Emma, but just wanted to scare her and get her attention. Yeah, okay. Yeah. After five hours of deliberation, the jurors found Riley Gall guilty of first-degree murder, as well as stalking, theft, reckless endangerment, and being in position of a firearm during a dangerous felony. Now, That's, that, that is so wild. Yeah. Now, in the state of Tennessee, a first-degree murder conviction carries yeah. an automatic life sentence. Good. So, here's the fucked up part. Riley apologized to the walkers, but stuck to his defense that it was an accidental shooting. And these were his words. I'm so sorry I took Emma away from you. That I robbed you of the experience of watching your daughter grow up. What I can do is tell the truth about that night. I wanted to scare her. I never meant to take Emma's life. Again, I'm sorry. And that's the tragic case of Emma Walker. You know, like, as a parent, how do you stay calm and not not just lunge at at a guy like that? Yeah. That says that to you After when they killed mu- your daughter. They murder your daughter. Yeah. Wow. What a piece of shit. Yep. So that's the tragic case of Emma so Walker. He's locked. Here's, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said the detectives found a bullet hole in, a, in the wall mm-hmm. coming from the outside yep. into the house. So mm-hmm. he shot through the exterior wall of the yeah. house and got her? Yeah. That has had to have been a freak shot because, I mean, the ballistics, you know, when a bullet hits something, mm-hmm. crazy things happen. Yeah. Okay. And you, you're, you're talking an exterior wall of, of a residential home, which is probably anywhere from 8 to 12 inches thick, mm-hmm. right, of any block or two-by-four and drywall, some yeah. siding, shit like that. Um. You know, say it was just siding and drywall, the bullet would definitely go through, but to aim and hit your target going through that material? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a one in a million shot right there. Yeah, I mean, who knows? All all I know is uh, the motherfucker's guilty. Yeah. I mean, he uh, Of he course, of course. I'm not I'm not trying to defend oh, what the I, guy did. I know. It's just I know. Um, you know, I'm ex-military. I've shot a lot of weapons mm-hmm. in my life. And you know that just that's just a pretty wild circumstance. Yeah, and to get that a kill shot through a wall yeah. with a, a nine millimeter handgun, no less. Yeah, okay, that's just pretty wild. And I'm sure I I might look into this a little more because I'm curious on like how how far was he. Yeah, from the building when he fired the I'll, round. I'll I'll show you the documentary okay. on YouTube and we'll watch it yeah. again. You know later, and you can you know hear what they said, and and I'll let you guys know what I find out. Absolutely. Yeah, because that's yeah. that's wild. Yeah. Man. Wow. And unfortunately, a poor girl. Yeah. Like that ass- whole li- whole life ahead of her. Yeah, whole, like that asshole said. You know, you don't get to see your daughter grow up. Yeah, motherfucker, because you killed her. Yeah. Ugh. Makes me sick. Yeah. Well, Ugh. on to you, babe. <laughs> on that, let's note. go on some 
uh, on something cheery. Like cults. cults. Like Yay! cults. Yay, cults. Okay. Um, I kind of like doing the list thing. Yeah. And uh, I tell you what, I got a good bit here. And before we jump into this list, let's take a quick break. Okay. Okay. And okay. then we'll be right back. All right. For you guys, it'll be immediate, but for us, it'll be like two minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, we'll see you in a sec. All right. And we're back. We're back. We're back. That didn't take long. No, not at all. It was like an instant. I know, for the listeners. <laughs> we just had a debate on whether or not I was going to say we're back or not. Uh-huh. Yeah. I said, well, I said goodbye, so I got to say hello. <laughs> you say goodbye, and I say hello. That's right. Hello, hello. When you say goodbye, I say hello. Hello, hello. hello. I don't know why you say goodbye. I say hello. I like that song. List of cults. Yep, let's get into that. Number one, Nexium. An American cult that engaged in sex trafficking forced labor and racketeering. Mm-hmm. Based in Clifton Park, New York, a suburb of Albany, Nexium purported to be a multi-level marketing campaign that offered personal and professional development seminars through its executive success programs. Of large group awareness training, the company was recruiting was a recruiting platform for a secret society called DOS in which women were branded and forced into sexual slavery. And I'm sure everybody should be fairly familiar with this since it was all over the news the past few years. Yep. Um, in early 2018, Nexium's founder, Keith Raniere, and his associate, actress Allison Mack, were arrested and indicted on federal charges related to DOS, including sex trafficking. Others associated with Nexium were also charged with federal crimes. As of 2019, five people associated with Nexium, Mac, Nexium co-founder Nancy Salzman, Lauren Salzman, and the Seagram heiress uh, Claire Broffman, and bookkeeper Kathy Russell, they all pled guilty to various charges. Ooh. Uh, Raniere, uh, yeah, Raniere was convicted in federal court of sex trafficking and racketeering on June 19, 2019. On September 30th of 2020, Claire Broffman became the first defendant sentenced in the case. She was, uh, when she was ordered to serve six years and nine months in federal prison. Mack was sentenced to three years in prison on June 30th of 2021. Wow. You remember her from uh, Smallville? Yes, I do. And that dude, the leader, yeah, Raniere. Yeah, he. Oh God, because remember odd. we were watching that one documentary. Yes, he's a weird looking he's dude very, too. Very odd. Yes. Um, after Raniere's conviction, he continued to direct loyalists from behind bars, encouraging continued recruitment. And uh, at his direction, members of the group have regularly danced outside of Raniere's jail cell. Really? And staged coordinated protests of individual prosecutors. Um, in September of 2020, it was estimated that about 50 to 60 people remained loyal to Raniere. Uh, Raniere was sentenced to 120 years in prison in October of 2020. Wow. Yeah, that one's one's pretty wild. Yeah. Number two, Angel's Landing. 
Never heard of this one. Yeah, this was this is a new one too. Angel's Landing is uh, is the name of a 20-acre compound outside of Wichita, Kansas, where Lou Castro and a small group of people lived in in an inexplicably extravagant <laughs> life in the early 2000s. Every episode, I get so tongue-tied. I was about to something. say that's a tongue twister. I, I think I would have had trouble with that one. Castro's followers were convinced that he was an angel and a seer. Who could look into the future and know when people were going to die. Oh, wow. Already suspicious of Castro's luxury vehicles and money that no one could explain, there was no, uh, there was no paper trail on Castro. Local law enforcement took an active interest when Patricia Hughes, a member of the Angels Landing community, tragically turned up dead on the compound in 2003. That sucks. Well, then when Patricia's husband died in a freak accident in 2006, local detectives uh, dove into every bit of personal and financial information he could find on the people living at Angel's Landing. Uh, What they found was disturbing. Expensive life insurance policies were taken out on people's (laughs) in Castro's circle and cash in by members when somebody in the makeshift family accidentally died. This pattern occurred around every two year, two to two and a half years. Oh my god! So he would he would get these people in, mm-hmm. preach to them all this shit about when they were going to die, get them to open up a life insurance policy in his name. Then he would have them whacked and cash in on that money. Wow! In 2010, Castro moved from Kansas. Kansas to Texas and adopted a new identity, but he was soon arrested by the FBI for aggravated identity theft and fraudulent use of a Social Security card number. During Castro's two-year stint in federal prison, Goldwyn and the FBI discovered that Lou Castro was really Daniel Perez, a man from Texas with many police reports, including a case involving sex crimes against two girls, 11 and 14, until oh. he fled Texas. Oh, God. Through interviews with members of the commune, they uncovered Perez's sexual sexual abuse of women and the girls at, uh, at Angel's Landing, including Sarah McGrath, who alleged that Perez raped her regularly for years. Sadly, she was one... She was just one of his many victims. More witnesses came forward... Uh, accusing Perez of abuse and fingering him for the murder of Patricia Hughes. Perez uh, Perez was charged with 28 felonies, and in February of 2015, he was convicted on all counts and sentenced to 80 years in prison. Wow. Yeah, he was a sick dude. I was just about to say. Yeah, very sick. So he he was raping all Fucked all the up. women in in this commune as well, Ugh. especially the young girls. Yeah, which that's is so sick. 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 Number three. <laughs> the Children of God. The Children of God. The Family International is a cult that was founded in Huntington Beach, California, United States in 1968. It was originally named Teens for Christ and it was later gained, later gained notoriety as the Children of God. 
It was later renamed and reorganized as the Family of Love, which was eventually shortened to the Family. It is currently named the Family International. Now, the Children of God was founded by a rogue preacher named David Berg. Okay. Attracting young runaways and hippies, Berg preached a kind of worship that combined the ways of Jesus Christ and the free love movement of the 60s. Members who amounted to about 15,000 people across the world at its peak didn't work and the children didn't go to school. The children of God didn't believe in the nuclear family, so the children were grouped together and lived separately from their parents. Oh, God. Yes. Um, In the late 1970s, uh, the children of God became notorious for the sexual practices that one of Berg's own daughters later described as religious prostitution. Berg coined the term flirty fishing, a sexual practice in which women would allegedly have sex with men to bring bring them into the cult. So he would use the women that were already part of the cult. Yeah. To have sex with other people to bring them in, including his own daughters. That's sick. Berg promoted and encouraged the sexualization of children within the Children of God community as Berg manipulated the family with his sadistic practices. uh, Members started leaving the community, including the families of actors Joaquin Phoenix and Rose McGowan who both grew up in the Children of God communes. Oh, shit. Former Children of God members began coming forward in the early 90s, describing an environment that uh, permitted and encouraged the physical and sexual abuse of children. Well, no wonder Rose McGowan and Joaquin Phoenix are fucked up. (laughs) You know? Uh, David Berg died in 1994, uh, while still under investigation by the FBI. And the children of God are still around as, uh, like I said at the beginning, the Family International, and claim that they no longer practice in that way. Okay. Number four. Number four. Children of the Lamb of God. Oh, God. <laughs> and, Does this stem and, off of the children of God? Uh, no, but I was also going to say this has nothing to do with the badass metal band. Yeah, Lamb, Lamb of, of God. God. Um, dubbed by the media as the Mormon Manson, the Church of the Lamb of God was started by Evril LeBaron in Chihuahua, Mexico, after uh, after he clashed and left his brother Joel's uh, sect. LeBaron convinced his followers that he received direct instructions from God, which included uh, using an abandoned Mormon doctrine. Uh, excuse me. Mormon doctrine, blood atonement, that, okay. that allows the killing of sinners to cleanse them of evil. LeBaron had 51 children with 13 different wives. God! And, and over two decades amassed hundreds of followers who allegedly murdered more than 20 people uh, on behalf of LeBaron and his orders. Mexico authorities arrested LeBaron in 1979 and handed him over to the FBI, where he was charged for the murder of another polygamous sex leader and jailed for the light jailed for life in Utah. Although LeBaron died in prison in 1981, 
His reign of terror continued until the 90s as he left behind a hit list of people he believed were traitors. Mm. And that was the Church of Lamb of God? These cults are just really fucked up. Oh, it gets better. Really fucked up. Number five. (laughs) The Manson family. Ah, the good old Manson family. How can you have a cult list without... The Manson. The notorious Manson yep. family. Yep. Um, who was a commune, gang, and cult led by Charles Manson. That was an active that was active in California in the ni- late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies. The group consisted of approximately one hundred followers who lived an unconventional lifestyle with habitual use of hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD. Most were young women from middle-class backgrounds, many of whom were radicalized by Manson's teachings and drawn by hippie culture and communal living. Mm -hmm. Soon after release from prison in 1967, Manson, who had been institutionalized or uh, incarcerated for more than half of his life, began attracting acolytes in the San Francisco area. With these, his so-called family, he later moved to a rundown ranch in the San Fernando Valley. According to the group member uh, Susan Atkins, the member of the fam, the members of the family were convinced that Manson was a manifestation of Jesus Christ and believed in his prophecies concerning the imminent apocalyptic race war. In 1969... I'm sorry, I just think that's ridiculous. It's crazy. <laughs> Thinking that he's Jesus Christ. Well, a lot of these cults, I mean... Yeah, look into brainwashed. It. It's pretty brainwashing, wild. Brainwashing, yep. Um, in 1969, family members Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel entered the home of Hollywood actress Sharon Tate yeah. and murdered her and four others. Linda Kazabian was also present but did not take part. Members of the fam- of the Manson family were also resp- responsible for several other murders, assaults, petty crimes, and thefts in that area. Jeez. That's a shame. That that was, yeah, I, I tell you what, I was, uh, a few weeks ago, I was listening on Audible, um, a little bit of Helter Skelter. Yeah. And, uh, I mean... <laughs> The book's kind of repetitive in the storytelling, yeah. but I listened to a good portion of it, and it's, I mean, it's chilling. Yeah. It's chilling, some of the detail they get into with what happened that I, night. I know. it. Oh, God. These people were definitely fucked up and completely brainwashed. Yes. Completely brainwashed. Uh, number six. All right. The People's Temple. Is this? Yes. Uh, okay. The People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ commonly shortened to the People's Temple, was an American religious organization which existed between 1954 and 1978. Originally founded in Indianapolis, Indiana, by Reverend Jim Jones, the People's Temple spread a message that combined elements of Christianity with communist and socialist ideology, with an emphasis on racial equality after Jones moved the group to California in the 1960s and established several locations throughout the state, including its headquarters in San Francisco, the temple forged ties with many left-wing political figures and bragged of its 
20,000 some members, although it was estimated to be around uh, three to 5,000 members at the okay. time. Now, the temple is best known for the events of November 18, 1978, in Guyana, when 909 people died in the mass suicide and mass murder of its remote settlement named Jonestown. Yep. As well as the murders of U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan and members of his visiting delegation at the nearby airstrip. The incident at Jonestown resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act prior to the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Wow. Yeah, uh, Jim Jones was a fucking maniac. I was thinking about... Drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, that's exactly where that term comes from. Um, I was thinking about getting an audio clip... And uh, decided not not to for this episode. Yeah. Um, but if you'd like to look into it, it's available online. Look up YouTube. There's plenty of documentaries about Jonestown. Yeah. And uh, there's there is audio of the final moments of this congregation, and it is heartbreaking. Yeah. I was so, just about uh, to say, uh, viewer discretion. Yeah. Trigger warning. It is very sad. Yeah. You don't see it so much. Uh, it's it's audio. Yeah. And you can hear him. You know, trying to talk these mothers to calm their children down because, you know, he basically trapped everybody well, they, inside. they put uh, a cyanide mixture into Kool-Aid. Yeah. And they were forcing people to drink that. And then the babies, they were just injecting them with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we will hit this topic again on a future episode. Yeah, we're going to have to because oh, the, the stories in that cult is just... Heartbreaking. Yeah, it really made my stomach sick. Listen, listening to the actual f- like footage and yeah. <laughs> Number seven. Yeah. Heaven's Gate. <laughs> Hail Bob. Heaven's Gate was an American religious movement that was founded in 1974 and led by Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite. <laughs> Known within the movement as T and Doe, respectively. Nettles and Applewhite first met in 1972 and went, in on, and went on a journey of spiritual discovery, identifying themselves as two witnesses of Revelation, attracting a following of several hundred people in the mid-1970s. In 1976, the group stopped recruiting and instituted a monostatic lifestyle. Scholars have described the theology of Heaven's Gate as a mixture of Christian millennialism, New Age, and UFOlogy. And as such, it is it has been characterized as a UFO religion. Yes. The central belief of the group was that the followers could transform themselves into immortal extraterrestrial beings by rejecting their human nature, and they would ascend to heaven, referred to as the next level or the evolutionary level above human. Mm -hmm. The death of Nettles to cancel in 1985, however, challenged the group's views on ascension, where they originally believed that they would ascend to heaven while alive aboard a UFO, later coming to believe that the body was merely a container or vehicle for the soul and that their consciousness would be transferred 
to new next level bodies upon death. Mm-hmm. On March 26, 1997, deputies of the San Diego County Sheriff's Department discovered the bodies of 39 active members of the group, including that of Applewhite, in a house in the San Diego suburb of Rancho Santa Fe. They had participated in a coordinated series of ritual suicides, mm-hmm. coinciding with the closest approach of the Hale-Bopp Comet. <laughs> Just before the mass suicide, the group's website was updated with the message, Hellbop, and this, this was the message that was on their site. Okay. Hellbop brings closure to Heaven's Gate. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level, we are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. You know what that reminds me of? Scientology. Little bit. Like the the alien shit. I mean, well, we all remember Applewhite. Yeah. He he was a whack job. He was pretty wild. Yeah. Woo. Gonna go hitch a ride on a comet. The name of Heaven's Gate was uh, was only used for the final few years of the group's existence. They had previously been known under the names Human Individual Metamorphosis and Total Overcomers Anonymous. <laughs> okay. Number eight. Number eight. Order of the Solar Temple. Okay. Founded in Switzerland in 1984... The Order of the Solar Temple traced its roots to the medieval Knights Templar, but also thought that the world would end in the 1990s. Things took a turn in 1994 when the the Order of the Solar Temple leader, Joseph D. Mambro, reportedly ordered the murder of an infant in Quebec. Later that year, more than 50 members of the group were murdered or died by suicide and the group's buildings were destroyed by fire jeez that one was actually kind of tough to get a lot of information on yeah um but yeah it's pretty wild people just started disappearing yeah and the 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 suicides were very suspicious jeez number nine probably because they were murders number nine number nine here (laughs) branch davidians okay or the General Association of Branch Davidians Seventh-day Adventists were a religious cult which was founded in 1955 by Benjamin Roden. They regard themselves as a continuation of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists established by Victor Hotef in 1935. Now, Hotef and his followers founded the Davidians and settled on a tract of land on the western outskirts of Waco, Texas, United States, where they built a compound called the Mount Carmel Center and began preparing for the Second Coming. Hotef died in 1955, and eventually Benjamin Roden called for the followers to come with him to Camp Carmel to listen to his message. This was the beginning of the group that would be popularly known as the Branch Davidians. Okay. Now, in 1981, a young man named Vernon Howell, later known as David Koresh, came to Mount Carmel and studied 
biblical profo- uh, prophecy, prophecy, Jesus, <laughs> under okay, Lois Rodin. Um, by 1984, the core group of Davidians had shifted their allegiance from Lewis, Lewis's son, George, to Koresh. Koresh's leadership of the Davidians ended at the climax of the Waco siege in 1993. Uh-huh. A 51-day standoff between members of the sect and, the fe- and federal agents when, Mark Ca- when Mount Carmel, Carmel was destroyed, by, destroyed in a fire... Four ATF agents and two residents of Mount Carmel were killed by members of the Branch Davidians during the initial raid. While four members of the Branch Davidians were killed by ATF agents on February 28, 1993, 76 Branch Davidians of all ages died in the fire that erupted during the siege on April 19, 1993. See, at first I didn't recognize the names. Or, or the name of the cult, but as soon as you said Koresh, uh-huh. I'm like, oh, that dude. I, I tried to do that on purpose. Uh-huh. You like that? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. We'll probably hit that one again, too. That's yeah. a pretty wild story. Yeah, it is. And they actually just did a movie with um, mm, John Carter, the guy that played John Carter in Gambit. Oh, um, um, Taylor Kirsch? Taylor, yeah, Taylor Kitsch. Kitsch. Yes. Why did I say Kirsch? He played yeah. David Koresh, and I tell you what, he, he lost, did a really he lost good some job. weight for the role. He did a good and job. And if you put his picture next to a photo of David Koresh, yep. they were almost indistinguishable. Oh, I know. It was scary looking, because, I mean, Taylor Kitsch is cute. Number 10. Now, this is the one I'm probably going to butcher. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Ayum Shinriko, founded by Shoko Ashara in 1984, Ayum Shakiro first made headlines in the late 80s amid accusations that Ashahara was for- forcing members to donate money to the group and holding them against their will. Like many cult leaders... Where was this at? Uh, uh, I think this was in Japan. Okay. Uh, like many cult leaders, Ashar believed in an imminent doomsday, this time caused by a world war started by the United States. According to him, only his followers would survive. In 1995, the group executed a sarin gas attack in the Tokyo subway, which caused the deaths of 12 people and injured 50 more. Oh, God. <laughs> After the attack, Japanese authorities learned that the group had also been responsible for the murder of lawyer uh, Satsumi Sakamoto, uh, who was working on a class action lawsuit against Ayum Shakiro at the time of his death. The group also murdered his wife and child. Oh, God. Yes. That sucks. Number 11. The true... Russian Orthodox Church okay, was an independent Russian Orthodox-like doomsday cult founded by Pietro Kutsinov. The self, the self-name of the group was Heavenly Jerusalem. The, the, this group broke away from the Russian Orthodox Church, considering it insufficiently Orthodox. Its members were not allowed to eat process, processed foods watch television, 
or handle money. They rejected barcodes, the national identification uh, number system, and passports because they contained satanic symbols for the number of the beast. In November of 2007, between 29 to 35 members of the group hold themselves up in a cave in Russia's Penza region, threatening mass suicide if authorities tried to intervene. Kutsnov had told them to hide themselves away and await the end of the world, which he predicted would take place in May of 2008. Kutsnov himself was not with the group, but had been placed under arrest by local police. Slowly, members of the group would emerge from the cave for different reasons like injuries, disbelief, and eventually because they started to die off and the cave was collapsing. On May 21, 2008, after removing the bodies of the dead, the cave was blown up. Officially, it was done because of its danger to the local population and curious visitors. Jeez. And we got... got, This is such a happy subject to be doing at this time. I'm telling you. I'm going to have, like, freaking nightmares tonight. Hey, this new podcast form. I know. There is nothing happy we're going to talk about. I'm... Everything is doom and gloom. Do you hear the background music? Yes, I do. Number 12. Number 12. The Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. Oh, jeez. Was a religious movement founded by Credonia Merwinde and Joseph Kibwirtere in southwestern Uganda. It was formed in the late 1980s after Mwende and Kipirtwe claimed that they had seen visions of the Virgin Mary. The goals of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God were to obey the Ten Commandments and preach the word of Jesus Christ. They taught they thought uh, or they taught that to avoid da- uh, damnation in the apocalypse one had to strictly follow the commandments. The emphasis on the commandments was so strong that the group disregarded talking for fear of breaking the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So these people wouldn't even speak to each other. That's uh, a little crazy. And on some days, communication was only conducted in sign language. Fasting was conducted regularly and only one meal was eaten on Fridays and Mondays. Sex was forbidden, as was soap. Soap? Yep. Soap? Movement leaders declared that the apocalypse would occur on December 31st, 1999. In early 2000, followers of the religious movement died in a fire and a series of poisonings and killings that were initially considered a group suicide It was later determined to be a mass murder by the group's leader after the predictions of the apocalypse failed to come about. What do they have against soap? I don't get soap. Chemicals. Soap soap cleans you. It's not natural. There's chemicals. Soap. And finally, number 13, and this one we will definitely be coming back to. The Rajneesh Param. 
Ah, uh, yeah. The Rajneesh Param was a religious international community in Washco County, Oregon, incorporated as a city between 1981 and 1988. Its population consisted entirely of Rajneeshis, followers of the spiritual spiritual teacher Rajneesh, later known as Oshko or Osho. Uh, its citizens and leaders were responsible for launching the 1984 Rajneeshi bioterror attack, as well as the planned 1985 Rajneeshi assassination plot in which they conspired to assassinate Charles Turner, the, the then United States Attorney for the District of, of Oregon. And the bioterror attack, that was, uh, they poisoned the enti- an entire town with salmonella. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. I think they got into uh, uh, like the town's local food stock and, yeah. and poisoned everything with. Was that that one with that one uh, lady? She would like. She was the speaker. Yeah, she basically spoke off on behalf of Rajneesh because he yeah. was one. He was getting really old. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a really weird documentary that we that's watched. That's what I was yeah. about to get to. If you go on to Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago, they dropped a documentary. We're done with that. They dropped a documentary <laughs> called Wild Wild Country. Yeah, yeah. And it's a multi-series, uh, or multi-episode limited series mm-hmm. uh, about everything that happened there. And if if you're into this kind of stuff, it is definitely worth a watch. Crazy ride. In in yeah. in the words of one of my favorite podcasts, I'm going to give it a Tupperware because I <laughs> yeah. really really dig it. Yeah. So um, and then also on the same note, on on Netflix, okay. do you remember the show Documentary Now? Yes. It was the comedy spoof yes. with uh, uh, Fred Armisen and, and Owen Wilson. And Bill, Bill, well, it was Fred Armisen and Bill Hader's show. Yeah. But the episode we're talking about, I think it's in the third season. Yeah. They do a play. They they do a parody of the Wild Wild West. Yeah. Um, or Wild Wild Country. Yeah. What is this, Will Smith? <laughs> <laughs> Wild Wild West. Bring him back to nineties. Wipe your feet on the door <laughs> before you come in the house. Anyway, check out documentary now because yeah. that 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 um Owen that, that one in particular. Yeah. Uh, Owen Wilson plays the Rajneeshi. Oh man, yeah, it's, that's... it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, Michael Keaton's in it. Yeah, he plays a detective. Yep, it's but... great. The actual documentary of uh, Wild Wild Country. Country. Yeah. Wild Wild West. <laughs> I know, you jerk. Now you got that in my head. Wild Wild West. Nah, it's it's definitely a, a crazy, crazy ride. Yeah. Uh, you just see how people can be brainwashed so easily. Yeah. Even I'll tell like, you what. Like we I'll... said, the Jim Jones documentaries, check those out. And, you know, people that are lost, I mean, they can easily... Get sucked into a cult. Well, you know, a lot of these leaders, they look for a particular type of person. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's usually your outcast, mm-hmm. um, um, your, your person that, you know, low education, um, yep. don't have family, mm-hmm. don't have anybody else, really. Yeah, ran away from home, something and like that. Yeah. Pe- people can be very easily molded. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People can be very persuaded. Yes. Yes. Um. 
out of that list, though, a few of those we are definitely going to Absolutely. double back. And I would love to hear in the comments what you would want to hear first. Yes. Out of those cults, what, what do you want us to deep dive into? Exactly. Because um, we're definitely going to do a full episode on a few of those cults. Yes. Yes. The Branch Davidians. The People's Temple, you tell yeah, us. Yeah. You tell us what you want to hear, and we'll bring it. Absolutely. And until then, I'm going to uh, find another crime story for you all, and we'll yeah. see you. Maybe I'll get it. I'll do another list. I yeah. like the list. Yeah. And then. Oh, before what? we go, real quick. Okay. I, I just want to throw this out there. All the information I got, I, yeah. I sourced from, uh, I've seen a little bit on BuzzFeed, uh, mostly from Wikipedia. That's okay. uh, where I got all this information. Information I got, I uh, went online, uh, did some digging, and I also seen some documentaries on uh, from 2020 to Dateline yep. on YouTube, everything. So, yeah. So, I'll be working on the next crime story for you guys, and you'll be hearing that in the next episode. Absolutely. And yep. I'm Fred. I'm Adrian. And we're, we're FNA. FNA. See, See you next time. Alright, show's over now. You can you can go listen to something else. Um Joe Rogan's pretty cool. Some other you know. Our show's over though. You gotta go. Next week. Yeah. We'll see you next week. <laughs>